the Gubby Gubby are the traditional custodians of the lands we record this podcast on. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as they hold the memories, tradition and culture of this land. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. Hello, I'm Kate Fisher. Welcome to Milkshakes for Mali, the podcast that tells the stories of blood donors and their recipients. We thank donors and encourage people to donate blood, plasma, platelets and breast milk. If you have ever been a donor, you could be the one who saved, prolonged or improved the quality of life of a person that we profile here on the podcast. And becoming a donor in the future means that you too could become a part of this story. Just a brief message before we get into into today's episode to clear up a common misconception about the Milkshakes for Mali podcast and let people know that this is not a lifeblood product and we do not receive any funding from Red Cross Lifeblood or any other external source. My husband Jeff and I volunteer our time and expertise to make this podcast, to thank blood donors and to encourage new ones. And we are always so deeply grateful to our guests for trusting us with their stories and for volunteering their time for interviews with us. However, this does cost us money to make, and to ensure the continuation of this podcast, we are absolutely open to private or corporate sponsorship. Please get in contact with us if you're interested. Now, on with today's show. Hugh Van Kylenberg is one of those humans who just makes you want to be a better person. When I came up with the concept for this podcast, my motivation was thanking the donors who continue to save and preserve the life of our daughter Marley and in the hope of recruiting new ones. Honestly, part of this motivation was selfish. We wanted to ensure that there was enough blood in the supply to keep our daughter alive. But part of it was also that I never wanted another family to share the fear in times of critical blood shortage that we have. Hugh has committed his life to improving the lives of others. He is the founder and director of the Resilience Project, where he supports others to find happiness through gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness. Initially, Hugh's program focused on improving the mental health of Australian school children, but this has now broadened to people across the lifespan and in a variety of professions and life stages. Hugh is the author of two amazing books called The Resilience Project and Let Go, which addresses the shame that we hold from our addiction to social media. He is also the co-host of one of my absolute favourite podcasts, The Imperfects, where alongside Brother Josh and the hilarious Ryan Shelton, they interview a variety of interesting people who are willing to make themselves vulnerable by sharing their own struggles and imperfections. This episode is dropping during National Carers Week, and it's an honest account of what our family with additional needs looks like and from our perspective and how we are perceived from the outside world. Co-host of The Imperfects, Josh Van Kylenberg, and my amazing husband, Jeff Fisher, both make an appearance at the end of this episode to debrief on the amazing chat that Hugh and I had. Strap yourselves in, milkshakes for Mali listeners. This one is a roller coaster of emotions. On being an author and founder of The Resilience Project, husband, the colossal transition to fatherhood, an author and someone who has devoted his life to making other people's lives easier and more enjoyable while also being a blood donor. I give you my chat with Hugh Van Kylenberg. 
This season on the Milkshakes for Marley podcast, we are telling the stories of blood donors alongside the stories of blood product recipients. And today we welcome Hugh Van Kylenberg. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Kate. Thank you so much. Um, it's such an honor to have you as part of the Milkshakes community. And I know that you hate being described as a wellness coach or as a self-help guru. Um, but for anyone that isn't familiar with the work that you do, who is Hugh Van Kylenberg and what is the Resilience Project? Uh, <laughs> the other one I hate is motivational speaker. That's the other one that I really rile at. Um, uh, I, well, first and foremost, I'm a dad and I'm a husband. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, Benji is five and a half. Elsie is two and a half. And Patrick, baby Patrick, is three months old. And so we were saying off air just before that I, I feel like I haven't really slept in the last five years um your sleep economy has changed i believe yeah. we were discussing <laughs> yeah I, that's a really like that's a really gentle way of putting it it's um <laughs> it's just i don't know why every single night i go to bed i have this weird i this optimistic i go i reckon we're, i reckon we're through the worst of it i've been doing it for five years of going we're through the worst even like even last night our our three-month-old i for some reason decided last night it was going to be the night that he just sleeps through the night and all of a sudden Will be sorted but my five and a half year old wake up at 10 to 4 and i couldn't get him back to sleep so like always the way isn't it i just and and patrick did sleep well he did a five-hour block which he's never done before but then so i was like this is great but then benji wakes up at, at 10 to 4 and i couldn't get him back to sleep he was up and ready to go so and one and woke his sister up at five so yes i totally understand but i haven't answered your question so so that's that that's my most important role being a husband and being a dad um yeah also a son and a brother, but I, I, my work with the Resilience Project has been, well, it's been 12 years now, really. It's, um, I, for the last 12 years, I've been turning up to places all over Australia, be it workplaces or schools or sporting clubs or jails or um, kinders. And I, I talk about things that we can do that help us feel a bit happier and to cope better in a challenging time and to improve our mental health. And mm -hmm. it's sort of more from just presentations to curriculum for schools. I think it's, uh, I read in a stuff the other day, 425,000 kids around Australia doing their curriculum every day now. And that's amazing. Been, yeah, it has a really nice evidence base now from Adelaide University, uh, South Australia, Adelaide, Adelaide Uni. Um, we, we, it's a podcast, it's a book, it's, um, it's a lot of stuff really, uh, but it's just about ways that people can, can, um, I mean, I, when when I first had Benji five years ago, people said, "What do you want most from him?" And I, I used to say I want him to be happy, but that's yeah. just—I've just learned that's just so unrealistic. I mean, yeah. experience moments of joy, but for me now, it's about—I just want him to learn. I just want him to know how to cope when times are tough. And um, yeah. the more I, the older I get, the more I realize I have no idea about the world, and the more ignorant I realize I really am. Yeah. Ignorance yeah. not the right word. I, I just there's just so much I don't know, and and. You know, I did parent talks for six years when I wasn't a parent. I would turn up to schools. If I was invited to a parent talk now and the guy wasn't a parent, I'd go, why well, listen to this bloke? He's got no idea. And I had no idea. Um, He's had a full night's sleep last night. And if he didn't, yeah. it was by well, choice. That's <laughs> ridiculous. Like he woke up when he wanted to wake up. Like that's, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my point is I, I think I've realised now as a parent, what we do is we give people strategies to cope better in challenging times and not even challenging times when times are good, some things you can do to make sure they stay good for as long as possible, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
so having had um, our little girl has had some very significant health challenges. Um, She spent the best part of about three years in hospital. Um, The only reason that we have still got her is due to the incredible kindness of plasma donors. And we'll get into that a little bit later in the episode. Um, But I have just gone and retrained. I actually graduated last week. Um, I'm now a non-directive child-centered play therapist. And the idea behind that is that adults talk through words and children express their trauma and challenges through play. Um, And the only way for children to get that specialized play therapy to deal with medical trauma is to go back into children's hospitals. And that's where the well-trained play therapists are placed. Um, But I know from our experience, you know, I put Marley into a car park of a children's hospital now. And as soon as we park the car, she'll say, mommy is today a talking appointment or a hurting appointment. And she uh-huh. wants to know whether she's going to need to have her port accessed and if she's going to need to be in hospital, you know, for three or four days having IV and plasma, you know, IV uh, plasma infusions and steroid infusions and if she's going to have to go through the trauma of all of that. So just to walk her back through the doors, and there's been lots of times where I've said, baby, it's just a talking appointment, but we'll get in there and get test results that are suboptimal and then it becomes a hurting appointment. So we've always tried to be very honest with her, but The dream is I'm setting up a private practice here on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, and I want to create a space for children and their families to be able to process that medical trauma outside of hospital settings and to work through that together, Um, particularly, yeah, particularly siblings as well. And um, for anyone who's listened to the pod, here's me bang on all the time about the fact that we don't like to talk about the fact that we have a special needs child. We like to talk about the fact that we're a family with additional needs, because I think once you start to label one person in the family with their um, illness, injury or disability as having, you know, special needs, it almost lays a layer of blame on that child about the change, like not intentionally, but it points yeah. out the fact that they're the reason that the families, you know, social circumstances have changed, economic circumstances have changed. Um, I know that you guys would have experienced something similar to that with your sister, Georgia, with her experience of anorexia. And you've written and spoken so beautifully about that. And realistically, that's gone on to shape you all as adults, not just as children. So I think it's reasonable to say that you know, that made you all as a family with additional needs. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I think um, I can't even begin to imagine that scenario of how brave and resilient Marley is. I mean, yeah. my gosh, a picture of resilience, a six-year-old turn up to the hospital mm-hmm. saying, is a hurting or a talking yep. and going ahead and going through it anyway. But then, yep. you know, a, a picture of, of resilience, but then also mm-hmm. the impact it's had on you guys already in your life and and you said the word pivot before but like how much your life has pivoted towards this now yeah um all mm-hmm. because of all inspired by marley now it's going to help so many other people and mm-hmm. and one day there'll be a time when you can sit down with marley and you can you know when she's an adult and you can say look at all this stuff that's happening here this is all because of you all inspired yeah. by you it's, it's pretty amazing yeah. it's pretty yeah. amazing. life's incredible And, you know, I was saying to you off air beforehand that there's been plenty of times where, you know, we've worked on a 10-day cycle with her and um, she'll be in hospital for three days having steroid and plasma infusion to reduce the inflammation on her brain. We'll have seven days out of hospital and then three days back in. Sometimes it's once a month that she needs the infusions. At the moment, she's in remission, so she's not on a regular protocol. 
um, but we could never look more than 10 days ahead. So it hit me then when you said sit down with her as an adult. At one stage, you know, we've done our Make-A-Wish weekend. We've done all of those things. At some stage, we didn't know if we were going to get her through the next 10 minutes, let alone the next hour or the next week. Or um, It's so hard to look ahead and plan into that future. And um, we have moved to the Sunshine Coast in Queensland now. We couldn't stay in Canberra because there is no paediatric intensive care unit in Canberra. Oh, <laughs> really? So we kept getting airlifted to Sydney all the time and um, we've got three neurodiverse kids. Um, and so that change of Marley and I being in hospital for a couple of months at a time, Jeff being in Canberra with the boys and losing that structure and routine was really not great for anybody's mental health, but, you know, really upset her siblings. But also we just didn't know how much time we were going to have with her. So how so, old are the boys? So the boys now are 12 and 10 and Marley's six. Um, so they have, you know, lived a fair slab of their lives knowing that their sister has an illness that could take her from and, us at any time. And, and, and what's the, what, what's their, if you don't mind me asking, what, how do they, being neurodiverse, how do they deal with that or how, how, how does that impact them? So I think we've had to be very honest with them because, you know, reasonable question, reasonable answer. Um, they will just ask an ambulance officer, you know, is this seizure going to kill my sister? Gosh. And they, ambulance officers, that we got to know them very well in Canberra because they were at our house sort of a couple of times a week if we weren't in hospital. Um, and they would just say to the kids, you know, paramedics are the most fucking incredible people in yeah, the world. Like great. they have done some phenomenal things and put up great. with some phenomenal things. And they would just say, you know, matey, I, you know, I know Marley very well. We've seen her lots of times. I've met you here before and we're going to do everything we can tonight to get her to hospital as quickly as we can to keep her safe. But you knew that there was actually nobody in that room during those times, including, you know, our then our 10 and eight-year-olds that actually knew whether we were even going to make it lights and sirens to the hospital, let alone to get to see sunrise the next day. And um I was thinking before when you were talking about, you know, the lack of sleep and the transition to parenting and how much your life has changed that women sort of get granted a little bit of, you know, that idea of matrescence and you get granted a little bit of a transition into motherhood where you not haven't got the same expectations on your, you know, your work production or, you know, your relationships or whatever it is. And I don't think that men quite get granted that in the same way. Mm. Um, and certainly as carers, I think, you know, my poor husband, like, I don't know how he has done this the vast majority of the time. He has had to be alongside this, still work up because, you know, we've st still work right through this whole thing. We've still got, you know, a mortgage to pay and kids to feed and, you know, astronomical medical bills because not everything's covered for the NDIS for Marley's yeah. rehabilitation. And, um, yeah, it's something that I'm really interested in unpacking a little bit as well is the way that men transition to fatherhood and men as carers. Yeah. Um... Gosh, it's a good question. And it's one I actually haven't even had the time or space to think about in the last five years. Like yeah. I'm either, I'm either, and that probably answers the question, but I, I, I'm either working or I'm very hands-on with, with our kids. Like Benji's is, is hard work. Um, yeah. and Elsie's a two-year-old, like two-year-olds are just, and they, they're at each other a lot at the moment. Um, and Penny is also writing a book. My wife Penny's writing a book at the moment about um, her OCD, and Amazing. so and so we're try It's like this. Is this? I mean, I what I. I just haven't thought much about it. I I I think. 
the thing I've thought most about is I just feel like it's I've always felt this, the whole thing feel very unfair on Penny and that like she's had to stop everything. Like she has, I haven't had to stop everything. I've been able to keep going where she's had to come to a grinding halt. And yes, we wanted to have kids and we knew that would be the case. Um, but she, she really, you know, she had this incredible book deal come up and it was her dream. It's a dream come true. And she's three months into it and then she has to stop to have a baby. And she thought, yep, I'll get back into it in three months time. I'll give myself, but it's three months now. And she's not like back into it. Like it's, no, you know, she's still, until she stops breastfeeding, like, which I think we'll do through another three or four months. Yeah. She can't, she can't really get two or three hours clear. And even if you do get two or three hours, you can't just go, right, I'll write for two or three hours. Then no. I can, like writing is a mm-hmm. you know, you need space and time. And yeah. So she's and even to... hormonally while you're breastfeeding, yeah, I couldn't exactly. have, like, my brain is a different, a whole different character when I am breastfeeding. It's all that oxytocin and happy hormones. You're not, I wouldn't be in the space to write about, especially like a topic like that. No, totally. So it's, it's a, um, it's, it's, I, I'm not really answering your question again, because I'm, I'm more, the thing that's has affected us most is how much it's affected Penny's life in a way yeah. that, um, like I, I, today left it um full day today left it um quarter to nine and i'll get back at five fifteen today and mm-hmm. did the same yesterday did the same day before that had a work dinner as well so not back till 10 and i get home and penny has breastfed all day put baby to sleep got the yeah. two-year-old to bed um dealt with a, a you know a recently anxious five and a half year old yeah and and that's her day. And I come home going, oh, I did this and I got to do this. And oh, then this happened. We met this person at the podcast and then and then managed to and and she's such a supportive person that she's sort of smiling. That sounds good, but it's mm. um and that's and kind shout of out to Penny too and her advocacy around saying not liking people saying that they're just a little bit OCD. That struck such yes. a chord with me because yeah. with our kids being neurodiverse, um, our boys don't present with the behavioural issues that sometimes people stereotypically think about when they think about autism. They're very, very, very placid, very placid boys. So they're good at masking it then? I'm get, is that like... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. The people don't see the meltdowns yeah. that happen then, at home. Yeah, but then you cop it when they're comfortable. and they're, yeah. Absolutely. But people have said to us so many times, oh, they don't look like they're autistic, you know. Aren't we all just a little bit autistic anyway? Aren't we all just a little bit on the spectrum? And I'm like... No, like, and I know that people say it, Mel, like well-meaning and, you know, they're just trying to normalise the experience for us, but that actually takes away from what our children are doing and, you know, the incredibly unique and special characters that they are. So Yeah, it's funny. I think people um, want to say when, when, when you, when someone learns that another child is autistic, I think they want to say the right thing, but saying you know well, we're all a bit autistic or you no 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 you no we don't all do what, no. what you know what your boys are doing you know when they no, get home to you. yeah yeah um, and they so, are phenomenal characters i you know all three kids of our kids have got diabetes marley's got the autoimmune encephalitis um the boys have got the trifecta so they're asd adhd and dyslexia so they've got a lot going on um and the medical stuff i would absolutely change for our children you know the diabetes the epilepsy the autoimmune encephalitis i would take that away or take it on myself for them without a thought but the neurodiversity i actually don't think that i would change as they're becoming older and growing into it 
such quirky, amazing characters. And um, I found it very confronting reading your book because our Thomas, our big guy, um, his big obsession is AFL statistics. So you'll love this story. I took him to um, the Richmond GWS grand final a few years ago where GWS got first banked by about a century's worth of points. And AFL, I grew up in New South Wales, grew up a rugby league girl, so AFL is not exactly my thing. But we're sitting there towards the end of the game. Everybody's so drunk around us and, you know, loving on Dustin Martin and doing the whole thing. And Thomas would have been probably 10 at the time, tears streaming down his face. He's heartbroken because his GWS Giants have been beaten. And someone yells out in the background, I'm going to get the statistic wrong, but the story's still the same. You know, no one's ever been beaten by this many points and blah, blah. And Thomas stands up, this little kid amongst all of these big burly blokes. That's not true. In 1972, when the Western Bulldogs were still called Footscray, they got beaten by this amount of like whatever it was. And I was just like, oh my God. And when I went home and I looked it up, he was absolutely right on that statistic. And he had pulled that out in that moment. So phenomenal brain. Like he's going to do something amazing as a sports statistician or something. He just loves his sport. He absolutely adores it. So I I can picture him um, like sitting next to Bruce McAvaney feeding him with incredible statistics and like. Absolutely. (laughs) Um. Yeah, he's just going to have, yeah, an amazing life and do amazing things. So I look forward to that for him. Um, But back to your book. So when I um, asked you if you would like to come on the podcast and you very graciously said that you would, I actually didn't know whether you were a blood donor or a blood product recipient at that point. I just love your work so much. And I just wanted to have you as part of the Milkshakes for Mali community. And you said that you hadn't loved anyone who was a blood product recipient that you knew of. So doing, I've only, full disclosure, only read this beautiful thing in, yep. the, I very well across your work, but had only actually, well, I listened to it as an audio book because that's what we do because we're parents yeah. and we drive totally. kids around all totally. the time. So totally. I listen totally. to you in the car. Um, but even just doing, not even looking too deeply into the sto- some of the stories of people in your book. Um, so Beefy yep. likely needed blood products to address his hydrocephalus or his stroke when he was a bit younger. Christy's dad. Most people that have bone marrow cancer need to have platelet infusions as part of their um, chemotherapy protocols. And even people like Nick Rewalt that you talked about. So with his sister Maddie's battle against um, aplastic anemia, they're massive, massive, massive um, blood donor advocates as well. So even just that light touch, we think that we don't have people in our inner circle, but these people significant enough to make it into your amazing book. They're obviously people that you care a lot about. And I think that's a big part of what we're trying to achieve through the podcast as well is, you know, you say, have you ever needed blood products? And people automatically usually think burns for plasma, um, car accident, or some kind of major trauma that you've needed a lot of blood. Sometimes people think cancer. Sometimes people think postpartum hemorrhage, post-childbirth. People don't think about, you know, the premature babies. They don't think about people who have plasma, and it might not save their life, <clears throat> but it can prolong or improve the quality of their life. And if that gives people an extra couple of days to, you know, say goodbye to their family and friends. You know, quite often blood products are used for things like that just to give people a little bit of time to finish off making their life choices and say their goodbyes. There you go. Um, so, amazing. amazing. Yeah. So, amazing. obviously, these people weren't the reason that you decided to do a blood donation. What inspired you to be a blood donor? 
Um, well, I think we were doing it. I think it was through school when I was a teacher. I think there was a, a big push for all the teachers. I think one of the students was, oh, it was so long ago. It was so, so long ago. One of the students was trying to get teachers to do it, I think. And I think it was through that. It was more, yeah. to be honest, it was more like, oh, students doing that's pretty impressive. Yep, I'll, um, yep, I can do that. That's easy. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's so long ago. So there was no, no one's personal story or no, no, yeah. it was just, it was a, every other, other people were doing it in, in my workplace. So I did it then. Mm, yeah. Awesome. Well, if you've been a blood donor once, that means you're a blood donor for the rest of your life. So just that one thing would have saved at least three lives. That one blood blood donation that you did would have saved three lives or kept three families together or. See, you I, don't know, even, talk- I didn't even know that. That's incredible. Like to know that one donation will save three lives. I think if everyone knew that more people were more likely to do it. I'm trying here. I'm trying. <laughs> we, you know, we talk about it in terms of as well. It doesn't just keep Marley alive. It keeps a little girl with her parents and it keeps a little sister with yeah. her big brothers. Like it yes. keeps our family together yeah. and people seem to sort of latch onto that messaging a little bit more. Um, I love the fact that you talk about the resilience project as being the work of your heart and your passion and your soul mm. and that really important work. And that when you were considering leaving teaching and thinking about where you wanted to go next, um, to quote from your book, and this made me stop and re-listen quite a few times. I don't want to get too Brene Brown in my podcast, but I <laughs> needed to stop, soak it in and listen again. Um, but that you wanted to make sure that no other families went through what you did as a family um, when Georgia was unwell. And then if you could stop one family, then it was an achievement. And that is our work. Like that is exactly what Jeff and I do in making yeah. this podcast and having blood donation advocacy is we don't ever want another family to turn up to a hospital and not know whether there's enough blood product to keep their child alive. Um, we only interviewed somebody last week um, and she turned up. And she was told, sorry, there's not enough plasma in the supply here for you today. Oh, oh man, that's devastating. And it just is my word. That's exactly that noise you just made. That's exactly what it did to me. And that's exactly how I feel every time I work, walk onto a donor floor to do a plasma donation and there's nobody else there because it makes me wonder if Marley, you know, relapses and, you know, her relapses look like, you know, 30 or 40 hour seizures that require intubation, ventilation, putting into induced coma, pediatric intensive care situation. And she might wake up and not, if she does survive, she can wake up and not recognize us, um, not treat us any differently to any of the other staff in the room, which she's done before. Um, Two years ago, she was mixed juice in a wheelchair using a speech device to communicate. And she's now able to be at school 14 hours a week. Um, living a really beautiful life and communicating beautifully. And our rehab teams have just been phenomenal. And neuroplasticity of the pediatric brain is just something that I will never fully be able to understand. She does have an acquired brain injury, but she's doing really, really well. I, I just, I'm sorry. I can't, this is, I cannot believe everything that you and your family have gone through. I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's everything you said in is incredibly heartbreaking. It is. And, and, and the, and on top of that, the thing that I first, I, I as a parent, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how you're doing. Like, you're, you and your husband are extraordinary. Because if any of your children had plasma as the only thing that was going to keep them alive and to keep you guys together as a family, you would quit every single thing that you are doing right now and make it your life's work 
to encourage other Australians to get in the chair and donate the plasma to keep your family together. Yeah, true. But I'm 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 interested in your like what it is that you know. I guess there was a point when you first found out the boys in your diverse. There's a point you found out the diabetes, and you find out about um, dyslexia, then you find out about mm. this, you know the autoimmune. Uh, I like. Hmm. Every time so, you find out, what, what what happens to you when you hear so this? Like, I think there's two things in that. The first one is one of the greatest things that has ever happened to us, and we wouldn't have thought this at the time, but is our infertility. So I, at the age of 34, had my 15th surgery for my endometriosis, and that was a hysterectomy at the age of 34. A few months ago, I went back and had to have another very significant surgery because the endometriosis is now inside my bowel. So fun fact, which I may edit out, I probably won't because that's yeah. just the way I roll. But the yeah. endometriosis, even though we've taken my uterus out, um, has now infiltrated my bowel. So I was getting a rectal period every four weeks instead of getting a vaginal period because that's how insidious endometriosis can be and what it can do to your body. Not fun to manage, but that's okay. Um, I want other people to be able to talk about that if that's what's happening to them. So I do tend to talk quite a bit yeah. about this kind of thing. Um because we never thought we were going to be able to have children when through IVF, we were lucky enough to have our kids, um, you know, a bit of a developmental delay, a bit of neurodiversity, even the diabetes, like it's far from ideal, but I think we were just so bloody grateful that we had them, yeah, that okay. we were just going to make anything work. The second thing to it is that through our IVF journey, um, we had a single embryo transfer done um, when our middle guy Campbell for that pregnancy the single embryo divided into identical twins um, and our Benjamin died midway through that pregnancy. Um, I carried them both to term. I birthed them both. So within moments, I birthed our live baby that who is Campbell. He's our surviving twin. And it's an absolute miracle that he survived that pregnancy after Benjamin died. And then I had to birth Benjamin. Um, so it's that ultimate you have perspective, like not many grief people, I guess. And trauma, like it's life and death, like yeah. literally within my body and then onto my chest within the same couple of moments. So um, I think we're so grateful to have these children and so grateful to have this family and we're so grateful that they chose us to be their parents of whatever journey that looks like that I think it just gave us incredible perspective when all of these things have come. So to, from my husband's point of view, I, I can only speak for me in terms of how that feels. But as an example, from Jeff's point of view, um, we had a neuropsych evaluation done with Marley after the third time that we nearly lost her. Um, and they were really just tracking what brain damage she had, essentially. And at the end of it, the psychologist came and spoke to me, didn't know the boy's background because we were just looking at her brain and said, look, I'm not sure if you've ever heard about something called the autism spectrum disorder. Now I laughed, which isn't reasonable because that, you know, both of our boys are on spectrum. So I was like, pretty much like, what do you want to know? Like I could tell you obvious psychologist on your training wheels who looks like he's not even out of uni yet. Like he was very, very young, yeah. beautiful guy. Hope he doesn't hear this. He was very nice about it. Um, but I called my husband when I got back to the hotel, cause we were in Sydney having it done. And I told him and he had exactly the same reaction and just started to laugh. And he was like, well, fuck, at least that's not going to kill her. Yeah. And that's where we were sitting with the autoimmune encephalitis at the moment that we were working in these 10 day cycles of just desperately trying to keep her alive. That 
her brain interpreting the world in a different way. Like it just didn't even rate a mention on the scale of things. Oh, so Molly's family. So she's on the spectrum as well. Yeah. So we didn't have her diagnosed until last year, partially because, you know, a diagnosis really helps you to get the intervention that you need. And she was already having all that rehab through her OT and her speech and her physical therapy and all of that kind of stuff that she was doing. Um, so it didn't serve us to get a diagnosis for her in any way, but when she started school, you know, to help get the right supports in place and that kind of thing. And we wanted to do it when she was well, you know, she's got PTSD from complex medical trauma. And so much of that can look like the symptoms of ASD as well, you know, in terms of that anxiety and the way that you interact and, you know, much like you were saying with your kids before being COVID kids, because she was immunocompromised, she spent two years of her life where she was either in hospital and she was only interacting with doctors and nurses, or she was at home with us and she was only interacting with us as her parents or her autistic brothers. So were some of those behaviours learned behaviours? <laughs> you know, yeah, she only interacted with adults and didn't speak to other kids her own age, but she actually hadn't seen any other kids her own age outside of a children's hospital for a good couple of years because it was too scary for her to do that. And um, at the beginning of the pandemic, Jeff started working from home and we had to pull our boys out of school and homeschool them, even though schools were still open in Canberra. Um, our pediatric immunologist just said, I said, you know, what happens if Marley gets COVID? Like how scary would that be? And it was a big beginning of the pandemic. And she just said, look, Kate, I need you to think about this in terms of every interaction you have with the community from here going forward, we'll learn more about the virus. But given Marley's history, if you go into a hospital situation and there's two people and one ventilator and you're in an ICU situation, someone will look through Marley's history and they won't give her the ventilator. Oh. So you need to do everything. And she was four at that stage. You need to do everything you can possibly do to keep her safe from this virus. And you can imagine then, you know, how that's played into the way that we've lived our lives. And yeah, it's just been a lot. And I don't know whether I'll leave this in the episode either, but the last time that we nearly lost her, um, it was early in the pandemic as well. She was, had been airlifted from Sydney to, from Canberra to Sydney the night before. She was pediatric intensive care and we know now that she developed septic pneumonia, secondary to intubation and ventilation. But she was had a 40-degree fever. She had, you know, they were suctioning a heap of phlegm off her chest. She clearly had infective symptoms that looked like COVID. And the head of the pediatric intensive care unit came over and I saw him grab his stool and wheel it over to the side of the bed. And I was like, you don't get to sit down next to my baby. You come in, you shout some directions and you keep walking. Don't wheel your stool down and sit next to my child because I know that's going to be news that I don't want. And he just said, Kate, and we knew him quite well because we had been airlifted there a few times. Kate, Marley is showing COVID-19 symptoms. You know what that means. And I was like, okay, so where do we go from here? And he said, that means she needs to go into isolation because you and Jeff have been in contact with her. Security are going to come and remove you from the hospital premises now. And unfortunately, we're not expecting her to last the 36 hours it will take to get two negative COVID tests before you can see her again. So I didn't take it that seriously. I was like, protocol, protocol. I understand this until I saw her consultants start to turn up in the room because she had a massive group of people that looked after her and her consultants had come up to say goodbye to her. And I was just like, I need to get my husband here, but we could only have one parent bedside in the PICU. We had a kid that was on the edge of life and both parents couldn't even be bedside with her in pediatric intensive care unit. 
So I just had to ring my poor husband and just say, as a video call, and just say, if there's ever anything that you haven't said to her, you need to say it now. You have got two minutes. And she's in an induced coma, you know, tubes and wires. She's got the whole thing coming out of her. She's machines breathing for her. But just prop up my phone on a FaceTime video call while I organized some other things so Jeff could say goodbye to her. Like, I couldn't even tell you what he said to her. Um and it's amazing what you can do in those moments and how quickly you can think. So I grabbed my phone and I recorded her a bedtime story because if she died without mummy with her, I wanted it to feel like she was just having a bedtime story and just going to sleep. Um, I wrote her a little letter from her brothers and then I just kissed her baby head and I told her that she didn't have to keep fighting anymore because a whole lifetime wasn't going to give her more than what mummy had given, you know, she'd given to mummy in the time that she'd had. And that when she got to the other side, just to look for the little boy that looked exactly the same as Campbell, Campbell's identical twin brother, Benjamin, and that he would look after her until mummy could get there. And then we'd go back to having the same amount of fun that we'd had before. So I guess that's the reality that we have been living in through the pandemic, having an immunocompromised child. Um, and that puts into perspective anything else that we have experienced with anything else in terms of everything that we've got going on with our children. And similar to, you know, the challenging things that you've seen in your life and the difficult experiences that you've had in your life and with your family, that if you think there's ever something that you can do to stop another family having an experience like that, if you can in any way do it, making it your life's work is just such a fucking honour. And it's an honour to sit with people that are telling stories every week to me, very similar to the story I've just told you. And so many families behind their doors have got stories just like that. And it's Australian blood donors that have kept them alive and kept their families together. I'm, I'm not often... Um, lost for words, but I, I genuinely don't know what to say. Like I, I, which is not great for a podcast guest, but I don't know. I don't know what to say at this point. Um, is Jeff there? Is your husband there? Um, he is working, but I oh, can yeah. get him to do, duck in in a sec. He can duck in at the end of the interview. Um, I, he's pretty I, phenomenal. Uh, he's a phenomenal dude. Well, no, you would I'm, like I'm, him. I, I'm more just both of you, and and I, 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 I can't even go close to imagining that scene in hospital. I, I. I it's just. I hope you never have to, Hugh. I hope you never have to go close to imagining. It's like it's like a nightmare that, like, I couldn't even I couldn't even like write a nightmare script worse than that. I, and that's I, what it, at the time it feels so surreal. Yeah. I think, and I have written about this a bit as well. That it's a bizarre thing that at that time, not only was I doing what I needed to do to say goodbye to her, but I was also so conscious of the doctors and the nurses around us that were potentially risking their lives to be able to keep my child alive when I'm sure they had families at home to go home to as well. And it, look, it was early in the pandemic before we knew everything about COVID and the impacts that it would have. But, you know, those nurses were crying as much as I was as they wheeled her away. And then a security guard turned up and literally took me off the hospital premises. And we just sat there and waited for a phone call just to see whether she made it through. And look, she did. And we're phenomenally lucky. There's so many people. We got to know so many people in those children's hospitals and they didn't get to take those children back out those hospital doors. I feel like and, I mean, I've, never, I've, never, I've never met Marley, but I feel like she's like, when I said before, as an adult, I feel pretty confident she's going to get there. She sounds like an incredible fighter. Look, 
I say all the time that with everything that she has been through, she is well within her rights to be a complete asshole. And she is the sweetest little girl that you would ever meet in your whole life. She tells you how it is. Like if people say that they're frightened of needles, she's walked onto plasma donor floors and held the hands of grown men as they fainted having a needle go into their arm and just says, oh, if you just stay still, the nurse will have the best chance of getting it on the first go. But if you're silly and if you move around, they're not going to get it the first no, go, and then you're going to have to do it again. Well, that's <laughs> She's incredible. She is just incredible. Um, but I think, you know, what I love about what you do, um, I was talking before about the neurodiversity of our children and the different way that they present in the world is I love being able to have the imperfects on in the background so that people can hear about lots and lots of different experiences and lots of other experience of, you know, the resilience that people show and the life experiences that people have. So they can see we're not the only family that's a bit of a shit show and has had a few struggles in the world. Like everybody has got different stuff going on. Um, I adore having that in the background and also to give our children um, a different example of masculinity. being so deeply involved in the sporting stuff you know and we have through our association with sporting teams particularly the GWS Giants who have done phenomenal things for our family I think we have a very different view of football as to what we did some of the stereotypical stuff that we did beforehand but I adore listening to you guys talk to each other and it makes me miss my siblings so much listening to you and Josh just keeping about together having an amazing time my siblings are my favorite people in the world so Thank yeah. you for what you make. I just love it. I just really uh, love what you do. Absolute pleasure. I, I love making it as well. It's a, it's um, yeah. I'm just about to cut um, the mouse. So I'll pass it on. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um. So to round us out, because I don't really know where else we go from there. I'd written a very different interview, and I know you've got another meeting to go to. I'm just going to ask you a favor. Yes. Just one final favor, and it's of you, and it's of Penny, who's breastfeeding, so she can't donate blood at the moment, but that's fine. Next time you're sitting in your car with your beautiful children in the back seat and your beautiful wife. I just want you to have a look around at all of those people and realize that statistically at least one, maybe two of you in your life will be dependent on blood donors to stay alive at some time across the lifespan. And only one in 30 people donate blood. And that doesn't seem very fair to me. (laughs) I I was very bad at maths at school, but even I can understand that that is... (laughs) That is, a, that is an issue. <laughs> Not a good situation. Yeah. Um, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast, I think it's just a really simple way. You know, statistics get thrown around all the time, but if you're ever sitting in a car full of people, one of those people will at least at one stage in their lifetime be dependent on blood donors to stay alive. And that's not just for that person. And that's for everybody in that car to be able to stay together. And that's but only really one person in the six yeah. cars at the lights will, will queuing up for the lights will give blood. So yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a really nice um reminder and and um important very important reminder as well yeah thank you um and to totally finish us off one of the greatest concerns that jeff and i have had as parents is what the impact is going to be not just on marley but on our other children of having lived um with a critically ill sister for such a long time and so many of the horrible things that you have that they have seen Mm. um Hugh, watching what you have done with your life after everything that happened with Georgia across multiple different experiences, her illness as well as her sexual assault and what you guys have lived through as a family just gives me such hope and such joy that our boys are going to grow up to be incredible people. And I'm so grateful that you can be a role model for them as to what that can look like. So 
well, thank you for what you do for the Australian community. It's very nice, Kate. But I, I do feel like what I went through as a sibling, you know, your boys have already been through so much more than I went through. So if if the equation is, you know, hardship and struggle and seeing other people struggle leads you to do really good things, I shudder to think what your boys are going to do because they have already <laughs> been through a lot more than they're on a they're much on a much steeper path towards greatness than I ever was. So um and they sound beautiful and wonderful and and um the world needs more thinkers like that. Um uh, like your boys. Mm. Oh sorry. Um and yeah it's um oh <laughs> sorry yeah it's it sounds like you have an incredible family and they're so lucky to have uh you and jeff they really are thank you josh is just about to come in here now so you can say hi to josh oh, is he? yeah this is kate who i just did a podcast episode with hello and, kate uh, and she's a big fan of the podcast hey josh how are you where's your head there's your head how are hey, you thank Good, you thank so you. much how are you? for what you guys make Oh, thank, thank you for thanking us. <laughs> it's bloody brilliant. We really, really love it. My husband's coming in too. We're all going to have a great big catch up. We're so sorry for your one thirty meeting. We've just totally. Oh, that's okay. How'd the podcast go? That's great. I thought awesome. that it went well. I mean, interviewing you is a bit intimidating. <laughs> how <are> you going? <laughs> this is my beautiful husband, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. How are you going? Nice to meet you. Good thanks, guys. No, he's a very intimidating person. <laughs> He's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. He made me cry. He did all sorts of horrible things. <laughs> that sounds like you, um, <laughs> Jeff. Jeff, I've just heard. I've I've just got up to date in the last hour with your story, and you are the most. You are the two of you, the most amazing people. I, I'll fill Josh in, but I have mm. never. I've never heard any, anything like it in my. I've never heard anything like it. And um, wow. It's I, one of those stories that until we sort of really say it all out loud, because you're living it, until you sort of hear the summary or other people talk about it, it doesn't seem real. Like it's, it's quite, yeah, when you hear it, like I'm in the other room doing work, but I've heard Kate talk about it and I do kind of forget. I think you do put all that in the back of your mind or kind of block it out a little bit. But when you hear the summary, especially the stuff in Sydney that we went through, yeah, it's pretty, um, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. So, uh, I, I've never, ever heard anything like it. And I, you're, you're both amazing. I can't wait to hear all about it. We'll yeah. send you some photos though, because she's doing so well now. Yeah, so yeah. we'll send you some photos of the good stuff. So that we end it with a smile. And she's got the most beautiful chocolate Labrador that's with her all the time. He's autism and seizure response. So he's pretty special too. He puts a smile on all our faces. Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's yeah, amazing. thank you. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you guys soon. Amazing. Thanks, Bye. I think I was totally in shock for a few days after recording this interview because I was so overwhelmed by Hugh's generosity of time and his support for the Milkshakes for Mali project. And we also went into some pretty deep places that I didn't expect to go. Um, but it was so humbling to hear Hugh say that if more people knew the facts about blood donations, like that one donation can save three lives or that up to one in four of us will need blood in our lifetime and yet only one in 30 people donate, um, it was so validating of the work that we do. Uh, even if you aren't able to donate blood, I ask you to share this episode with your networks because hopefully this will be the one that encourages more Australians to become blood donors. Nothing feels more Australian like the modern demonstration of mateship than donating blood or breast milk and this product being used to keep another Australian alive. Our daughter is still alive today because of this incredible selfless gift and it is my privilege to create a space for others to tell their stories and to give thanks. 
This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Fisher. Today's guest was Hugh Van Kylenberg, with special appearance from Josh Van Kylenberg and Jeff Fisher, who also did the audio production for this episode. If today has inspired you to make a blood donation, we would love it if you could add your donation to the Milkshakes for Marley Lifeblood team. You can request this when you book in for your donation by calling Lifeblood on 13 14 95. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please let us know if you have a story to share or nominate a guest that you would like me to interview by DMing me through the Milkshakes for Molly Instagram page. And as always, please rate, share, review and send this episode to a friend. I will leave the final word to Molly. Thank you for my prayers, Molly.